Good morning, Woodland Hills. Ah, so good to see you all here this morning. And those that we can't see, all you guys, good to, good to have you with us here this morning. Whether you're in Britain or in Canada or in Russia or in China or in New Zealand, uh, we've got Woodland Hills folks from all over the globe. Uh, which means that probably the majority of people listening to this message, 4th of July doesn't mean that much to you. And that's okay. <laughs> We're okay with that. We like to celebrate freedom around here, but the freedom that we celebrate is not the freedom from being under the queen or any other form of government. It's true freedom. It's the freedom that's found in Christ. Amen? Amen. The freedom that comes when you get your life from Christ and you don't have to cling to anything. That's freedom. You don't have to cling to your own life. Uh, that's freedom. Uh, you're no longer chasing, craving the things of the world. Uh, your, your, your innermost needs, your innermost heart is fulfilled out of your relationship with Christ. That is freedom, amen? So let's celebrate freedom here this morning. Whom the Son has set free is free indeed, amen? All right. Glory, 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 glory. I, uh, I'm Greg Boyd, if you're, if you're new here, and uh, teaching, I'm a teaching pastor here. I just want to say I, I just so appreciate all of you. Uh, I, I appreciate being part of this body. Um, it just means the world to me that, um, you know, every time we come and we have this goal that we want to raise money on top of the regular giving, that you guys are so faithful at, 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 at contributing and keeping this thing running. Uh, I, I, thought, I thought we were going to take a big crash during the whole COVID lockdown thing. And and, and our, our, our giving actually went up. <laughs> How does that happen? It's like, and, and I just so appreciate that. It, it, it enables us to do a whole lot of good stuff. And uh, here we, we, you know, we meet this goal of $65,000 uh, to uh, be helping to create this, this subtle community uh, where we're inviting uh, homeless folks to come be part of a, a church community. And uh, I, I just feel so good about that. I couldn't do that if I'm on my own. I can't do that. But but together we can do that. And then we're working with other churches to do that. And it's just a beautiful thing. Um, your life gets to count. Your life gets to matter. And, it, it, and for it to matter the most, we've got to do it together. Uh, it, it, it takes us doing it together. And I just am so glad I'm, I'm part of this togetherness. <laughs> I really appreciate it. I, I'm in a season where um, it's, it's, it's a rough season on a lot of different levels. Um, but boys, it feel good to have a positive <laughs> Uh, and this is such a good positive. This is, a, this is an eternal positive. Amen. I, I just find that, it, 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 you know, the more, the, the, the worse the world dishes out to you, the more precious, the more precious those things become that are, that are, that are positive and, and that, that are eternal and that matter. And uh, so I very much appreciate all of you and being a part of this, this congregation, uh, this expression of the body of Christ. Amen. Amen. So... Happy Fourth of July. Let's celebrate true freedom. <laughs> Amen. So last week, I, I just want to recall, bring to your memory this, this rule, this exegetical rule. It comes from St. Augustine, and it's a good one, believe it or not. You know, some folks ask, can anything good come out of Nazareth? And around here, sometimes folks say, can anything good come out of St. Augustine? Well, some things can, good, good can come out of St. Augustine. And here's one. He came up with this rule. We talked about it last week. That everything in Scripture has got to point to, has got to reveal love. It's got to enhance our love for God and our love for one another. And the ultimate expression of love, of course, is the cross of Jesus Christ. So everything in Scripture is supposed to point to Jesus Christ, the, 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 the love that was revealed on, 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 on Calvary. And Jesus himself tells us that. Read Luke 24, for example. And so when we come upon, come upon things, and, and, oh, and, and that this, this love goes against all reason, because our fallen brains can't fathom the full scope and intensity and quality of the love of God, the love that God has for us, and then the love that we're called to live out. So we, we titled this series that we're in Against All Reason. But sometimes in Scripture, and sometimes even in the teachings of Jesus, you'll come upon things that don't seem loving, that don't seem compatible with the kind of self-sacrificial love that's revealed on the cross. And in those cases, what I shared last week is that we have to just keep digging. Because everything in Scripture is going to be compatible with, is going to point towards, is going to reveal the love of God that's revealed on Calvary. And so you keep digging. You look in the historical context. Maybe there's things about the, the language and about the historical situation that will explain this passage. 
Or maybe we're dealing with an accommodation of God, where God, because he won't coerce people into believing the true things, he sometimes has to accept them as they are. And so some of what we find in Scripture reflects not the truth about who God is, but the truth about who God's people are and what they think about God. But either way, uh, Paul says that the cross is foolishness to the world, 1 Corinthians 1.18 and it's weakness to the world. It looks so dumb that an almighty God would get himself crucified. But to us, he says, it is the wisdom and the power of God. It goes against all natural reasoning. Because our natural reason, reasoning is conformed to the fallenness of this world. But we are to receive it and believe it and walk in it and live it and surrender ourselves to it. Um, and be conformed to the image of Jesus Christ in his love. Uh, but when something in Scripture doesn't conform to reason for any other reason, it's not, it's not because it's so loving. Maybe there's something in Scripture that seems so unloving. Or maybe it just seems patently absurd. Well, that's where we have to keep on digging and find an interpretation that is uh, compatible with, with love. Uh, that applies to this verse here, that, the first verse we'll, we'll, we'll be dealing with here this morning. So uh, we're going to deal with Matthew chapter 5, verses 42 through 48, because that's where we left off. And here's what Jesus says. Give to everyone who begs from you. And do not refuse anyone who wants to borrow from you. All right. So th this is a, a passage that, I mean, this is kind of like a preliminary passage. We'll get into the real juicy stuff here in a moment. Uh, but I just didn't have time to get to this passage last week. Right. Jesus says we're supposed to give to anyone who asks from us. Now, um, that could raise some questions. Everyone, so are we supposed to give to every panhandler we meet on the street uh, that, that you know, is there on the corner when we drive up to, 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 to the stoplight? Um, what if you have reason to suspect that maybe this person might use this money for drugs? Is it loving to give to a person who you might just be enabling their drug abuse? Or what if they, you have reason to think that they might be wanting to get this money to, to, to buy a gun? And kill themselves or kill someone else? Is it loving to give to a person that you think is suicidal or homicidal? Or Jesus says give to anyone who begs. Doesn't qualify it. So what if your child is asking for that fourth, you know, snicker bar? I suppose, well, Jesus says give to everyone who begs. My kid's begging, so here, have another snicker bar. See, there's, you think, of course not. Because those aren't loving things to do. So here's, we need to dig a little deeper. Uh, what's going on in this passage? And in, in this case, it's not very hard to discern maybe what, what, what's going on and interpret it in a way that's, that's loving. Um, in, 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 in Jesus is talking here to first century Galilean Jews, right? They're peasants. And these folks live, all of them live either on, on farms they used to own, but now they have to rent because the wealthy folks have gobbled up the property like I talked about last week. And if they live in any kind of town at all, it, it's going to be a small town. So you have to think small town. Usually these, these, these little towns would be a couple hundred people. If you're living in a town with a couple thousand, that's a pretty big town. And so in this context, you see, where you, you go about your daily business in the context of a, of a couple hundred people, you know one another, maybe not by name, but, but you're familiar to one another. Uh, it, it, and so in, in this context, where there's poor folks out there begging, um, you know something about them. They've been around here. You know, Joe is always on that corner begging and that blind person's over on that corner begging and that uh, person who can't walk, is, he's always stationed right here. They have their spots. And they're part of the life of this community. And in that context, what Jesus is saying is, you know those folks that you come in contact with every day uh, who, who, who can't support themselves? Well, help support them. Have an, uh, a, a, an outrageously generous heart and, 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 and help support. The community needs to come around these people and support them because they can't support themselves. That seems, that's really loving. But it's very different than the context we have here. I pull up on, 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 on Dale Street every time coming home from church. And unless there's really bad weather, there's always a panhandler there. A person who's just going to ask you for money. Now, I don't know them. They don't know me. In fact, in our city life, no one knows anybody, Right? So I don't know if it's loving to give this person or not. Maybe I'm going to be supporting a drug habit. Maybe I'm going to be helping suicide. Who knows what I'm supporting here? And so I, 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 can't, I can't know that it's a loving thing to give to this person. Um, and, and, and so what I, what I suggest is, is, is this. Here's how I do it, at least. Um, I mean, this passage could haunt me if I felt like I was supposed to actually give to every person who asked for me. In fact, if, 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 if I did that, I'd be broke pretty quickly because in the city, people are always asking for money. But uh, my default is not, no, I should give to them. My default is, I won't, because I want my money to count, and I, I give to causes that I know are going to be good and furthering the kingdom, uh, and, and that's not the case here. Unless I feel the Spirit prompting me. 
Or let's have other reasons to think that, that this person really is, is, is in need. And, 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 and in those cases, I'll give, and I'll give whatever I feel like the Spirit is telling me to give. But otherwise, I don't feel guilty about not giving, because I simply don't know that that's a good investment of, uh, of in money's like time. You know, you'll have a finite amount of it, so you have to use it wisely. So pray about how you should respond to the people who are asking you for, for money, and, um, and just follow the Spirit on that. All right, so now... Let's turn to the juicy stuff. Here's what uh, it says in verses 43 through 48. This is, I'll tell you up front, I think for reasons that I hope will become clear here in a moment, uh, the, it is the most important and most challenging and also most uh, underappreciated or uh, underemphasized passage in the whole Bible. I mean that. This, is, this gets to the rub of everything. So listen to this. You have heard that it was said, you shall love your, en- your neighbor and hate your enemy. But I say to you, love your enemies and pray for those who persecute you so that you may be children of your Father in heaven because he makes his sun rise on the evil and the good and sends rain on the righteous and the unrighteous. That's how he loves. For if you love Those who love you, what reward do you have? Do not even tax collectors do that. And if you greet only your brothers and sisters, what are you doing more than anyone else? Everyone loves those who are familiar to them. He's calling us to an unusual, uncommonsensical kind of love. Do not even the Gentiles do the same. But you, children of God, are called to be perfect. Therefore, as your Father in heaven is perfect. All right. Um. Here, one could say, you could reason like this. In fact, this is how it's usually been treated. A person might say, well, look, that's absurd. Obviously, that's absurd. Um, I mean, love our enemies. Uh, He clearly doesn't mean all enemies. I mean, if someone breaks into your house and is threatening your spouse or your children, uh, obviously, you're justified using any kind of violence that's necessary, even killing them, if that's what's required to protect those who you're responsible for, obviously. So we needed to dig down and find a, uh, a, a different interpretation. Because it wouldn't be loving to not kill the person who's going to be uh, trying to harm you or your spouse or your uh, children. It goes against reason. And it does go against reason. But see, in this case, it goes against reason for the right reason. It goes against reason because it's calling for a love that we have trouble fathoming. It's not absurd in and of itself, it's not like a teaching like where Jesus says, you know, if your hand offends you, cut it off and cast it from you. That seems absurd, so you've got to keep on digging, and it turns out that that's a hyperbolic way of, of, of just putting an exclamation point uh, on a sentence back in those days. You say things in extreme language. No one takes it literally. So, but it's not, this isn't like that. This strikes us as, as uncommonsensical, as irrational, because it, it, it's so loving. And whereas we have to explain passages that don't point to the love of God that's, that's revealed on the Calvary, I submit to you that this passage perfectly reveals the love of God that's revealed on Calvary. Uh, This is the kind of love that God has for us. It's a love of enemies. While we were yet enemies, Paul says, Jesus Christ gave his life for us. And and, and we're called throughout the New Testament to imitate that kind of love. That enemy embracing kind of love. That that refusal to retaliate kind of love. Jesus could have called legions of angels from heaven. And, and, and protected himself. And he would have been justified doing it, but he didn't. Instead, he gave his life for the very people who were crucifying, which all, crucifying him, which ultimately is all of us. And Paul says, Ephesians 5, a number of other places, that we're to imitate that kind of love, be imitators of God, which means we're to live in love as Christ loved us and gave his life for us. So this passage just makes explicit what all those other passages about following Jesus' example are, are, are teaching and that is that we're to embrace this kind of love. He literally means we're supposed to love all of our enemies. That's what it means to imitate God. And he says to do this. Now listen to this. He goes, live in this kind of love that you may be children of your Father in heaven. He makes this the criteria for being considered a Christian, a child of God. That you may be, this is how we manifest the truth that we are born from above. We share the Father's likeness. There's a family resemblance. And that resemblance is most clearly seen in how we love. A capacity to love that the world generally does not have. 
And that's how we put it on display. We love like the Father loves. And he loves the way the rain falls and the way the sun shines. Doesn't matter whether you're righteous or unrighteous. The rain's going to get you wet. It doesn't matter whether you're wicked or, or, or holy. The sun's going to warm you up. So also it doesn't matter whether you're best human being in the world or the worst human being in the world, God's love for you is invariant. It's indiscriminating. It doesn't pick and choose who, who God doesn't pick and choose who he's going to love. God is love. That's just who he is. And so there's no off button on that love. And then when God transforms the life, when God, when, when, when we surrender to him, now we, his spirit has put in us and we have that same capacity to love like that indiscriminating, without an off button. Doesn't matter whether the person is righteous or unrighteous, holy or wicked. Doesn't matter whether they're giving us a bouquet of flowers or holding a gun to our head. Our call is to love them. And I know that sounds crazy. But that is the call. That you may be children of your Father in heaven. I almost want to say it. I hesitate to do this, but it's like, are you saved? People ask that question. Well, are you saved? And they mean, do you believe in Jesus? And that's, and that's, that's great. You need to believe in Jesus. But the criteria Jesus gives us here is this. Are, are, are we living in love as Christ loved us and gave his life for us? That's, that's the meaning of what it is to be a child of God. And given its importance how central it is, it's a little bit surprising that the church, since the fourth century, that theologians generally have gone to extreme lengths to try to get around this verse, to say that it doesn't mean what it seems to clearly mean. First three centuries of church history, Christians lived uh, the way Jesus died. They, 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 they didn't cling to their life. Uh, they were against all violence, against all retaliation, all vengeance, against all you know, killing. They were against that, all that. But then when the church inherited all this political power in the fourth century, well, the thinking changed really quickly. Because you have to use some kind of violence if you're going to help run the Roman Empire. And Constantine invited the church to do that. You got to use violence to protect the borders, right? You got to use violence to keep law and order inside the, 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 the empire. And so Christians acclimated themselves to violence and then began the whole game of finding ways of trying to get around these passages. And the reason is because this, the, the, this passage here, it it's like, it's like the tip of the arrow of the kingdom that pierces our heart and transforms us inside out. But it hurts a little bit going in. Uh, it's the tip of the, the, the arrow because it goes after, this goes against our, our basic instinct of self-preservation. It goes against our basic instinct of the need to protect at all costs those that we love. And it goes against our fallen instinct to retaliate, to automatically retaliate. And that seems to be something that we're almost born with. You see the little grandkids, one year old, if someone hits them, they hit right back. No one has to teach them that, they just do it. So we have this instinct to protect ourselves, to protect our loved ones, and to get even. And this teaching goes to the heart of that. It says, no, you, to follow Jesus, you must say no to that. And on top of that, on top of that, it goes against what is, I believe, our deepest in, uh, cultural indoctrination. A conviction that we all inherit in the process of just being raised in this fallen world. And that conviction is often called the myth of redemptive violence. It's a foundational belief that all human beings, almost all human beings throughout history have shared. It's a conviction that sometimes you've got to get violent to solve problems. Violence fixes things. The myth of redemptive violence. Violence will redeem us. It's the conviction that if, if just enough of us good people, us righteous people will rise up and vanquish those evil people over there, well, then the world will be right. Then the world will be good. Then, then the righteous people will, will rule the world. We can fix things through violence. One of the most, I think, amazing testimonies to just how fallen we are is that we are so smart when it comes to technology, incredibly smart when it comes... I mean, we're, we're, we're on the precipice of sending someone to Mars for crying out loud. But this myth of redemptive violence has been a staple of civilization for at least the last 5,000 years. And we could talk about the history of that if we had time. But for at least the last 5,000 years, it never once has it worked. Not in the long run. Finally, any civilization, any tribe, any family, any group that got to power by means of violence that wasn't eventually toppled by violence. There's not, there's not an exception to this. You, you live by the sword, you die by the sword. Jesus taught us that, and history proves it, and yet we keep on doing it. Maybe this time it will work. 
This is the war to end all wars. This time the righteous will really vanquish the wicked. And it feels good in the short run when you're the victorious, but eventually he comes around and bites you. And yet we keep on doing it. Martin Luther King said, will someone have, will someone, he's talking about this, this talking to folks before March, have the wisdom to say we opt out of that stupid system. It goes around and around and around and around and costs lives and lives and lives and blood and mayhem and chaos. Will someone have the wisdom, he says, to, to opt out of that system to say we're going to try something radically different. And maybe it will look stupid in the eyes of the world. But it's not as stupid as doing the same thing over and over again. That's the definition of insanity. Einstein taught us that. Doing the same thing over and over again, expecting a different result. Yet we keep on doing it. One of the oldest writings we, I, we have uh, is it's, it's a, a writing called the Enu, uh, Enuma Elish. It comes from Mesopotamia. And it's a creation story. It's, it, it's older than the Bible's creation story. And in fact, some scholars argue that the Bible's creation story is written as a polemic against this story. Um, the Enuma Elish, it means from when on high. And, and, and basically, at the center of this story, it's about, it's about 5,000 years old. Um, well, the story is, this actual writing is, is, is earlier than that, but it's, it's picking up an oral tradition that predates it. But uh, uh, there's a good god named Marduk and an evil deity named Tiamat. And Tiamat is this, this chaos monster that all ancient people, ancient uh, Near Eastern people believed in. And there's a battle that breaks out. And at one point, Marduk is able to like, blow this air into Tiamat to inflate her, and then he shoots an arrow at her so she explodes. And out of her body parts, Marduk creates this known cosmos, this universe. And out of other body parts, he creates human beings to be the slaves of the God, to serve the gods. And so, actually, when you look up at the sky, it looks like a dome. And, and in the Enuma Elish, that's the inside of Tiamat's womb. The whole creation takes place inside of Tiamat's womb. And we're made out of, uh, out of Tiamat's body parts. And so what this story is saying is that the creation itself survives by violence. It comes about by violence. And we, human beings, we are made from uh, this violent chaos being. Now, we're made from, out of a good God. So we have some good aspects to us, but we also, our, our, our basic nature is Tiamat, it's chaos, it's violence. And so what this story is saying is that violence is totally normal in this universe. Uh, it, it's the way things are. Uh, it's the way things have to be. One group dominating another group, enslaving that group, killing that group. Then that group retaliates and kills. The, that's just the way things are. That's how it works in this world. That is embodying the myth of redemptive violence. It normalizes violence so that we don't even notice it. It's like the air we breathe. This is why, and you find versions of this myth of redemptive violence, you find versions of this throughout all cultures throughout history. Often they, they, they involve a hero. You know, evil is getting the upper hand and, 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 and it looks like evil's gonna win, but uh, the hero shows up and massacres the, the villain and then we righteous people live happily ever after. There's always a violent solution. And in all these stories, whoever is the audience assumes that they're on the side of the righteous. And so they feel righteous hating that villain, and they feel really good when the villain gets what they're due. And the world is saved, the tribe is saved, the family is saved. This is why Marvel movies work so well, by the way. Um, so I, I have for years had a beer, beer and burger night with my, my son Nathan. We go out every, every Wednesday or Tuesday and um, um, get a beer and burger. Well, we added to that, at the end of that, our, my wonderful son-in-law has invited us over uh, to watch a Marvel movie. And he's got this man cave, you know, with the surround sound and big screen. And, and yeah, it's awesome. Now, I, I, never, I was never interested in Marvel movies because I was interested in Marvel comic books. And I don't know anything about the Avengers and those things. And I, I just thought it was cartoonish. And so I, I just didn't think I'd enjoy it. I'm doing it for my son, right? The, the act of love. But you know what? They're really enjoyable to watch, I have to admit. Yeah, they're violent. I know it. I, I probably shouldn't. But I doubt at this age it's going to turn me into a violent person. I'm just thinking. I, I don't think it's... So I'm not, I'm not worried about that. But uh, it works. You know, they're so good at, 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 at taking this myth of redemptive violence and, and, and just putting it on steroids, you know, and making it so exciting. And they, they, they draw you in so you really hate Loki, all oh, that deceiving. And you know he's going to die the worst death you can imagine. Whenever they really make an evil person evil, you know that it's because they're setting up for a really good ending. And the ending is always a violent extermination of the evil person. And they always get their due. 
And it's like, yeah, all right, we righteous people. Once again, the universe is saved by the righteous hero. It's a myth of redemptive violence. But it works because we're so conditioned to believe it's true. We're, we're, it's, it's like an archetype in our brain. And what's really interesting to me is that I, I, you know, I taught world religions for 16 years at Bethel College. And I know a little bit about mythology. And, and these, these Marvel movies, they take ancient mythology, especially from, from Nordic mythology, up in the Scandinavian countries where they have Odin and Loki and all those gods. And they take ancient Greek mythology and they just modernize it. They just modernize it. And, and instead of these gods having supernatural power, the gods have advanced technology, which is pretty clever. And, and so it's a te technological warfare. I'm not recommending you watch it. I'm just saying, I explain why, why it's, it's fun to watch, why it taps into something primal in us. People are worried about violence in movies today and kids watching violent videos, and, and that is a deep concern. But see, this is so profound, so deep. It's not a new thing. It's not like a, a recent thing that we have. When I grew up, every day we played war. That's the main game we played. I, I got a gun for every birthday, gun for every Christmas. That's just, that was the main toy. And so we practiced shooting one another. Grow up, learn to kill. And that's how it is in most cultures. Why? Because we're breathing the air of the myth of redemptive violence. And all cultures, they need to raise up warriors, so you got to train them young. And you get them into violence, and you convince them that we are the righteous ones, so that when they turn 18, they'll fight for you, kill for you, and do whatever you want them to do. I was being conditioned by this. But you see the, the myth of redemptive violence at work all over the place. It, 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 it's in what you don't notice, but you will notice if you're looking for it. For example, this is the 4th of July, and uh, 4th of July is about, we celebrate how America is independent. We're, we're, we're not under England any longer. Woohoo! We have a better, better de dental health plan, or whatever. But see, think about this. Um, 4th of July celebrates a time when both sides here are claiming to be Christian, so the American Christians rise up against the British Christians, and apparently we're more effective at killing them than they were at us, because we won, right? Um, so, so now we get to be American rather than, than, than English. Well, that is what it is, that's how the world works, it goes on and on and on, but is it something that we should be celebrating? And for the most part, we don't even notice this, that there could be any possible contradiction between what we believe about Christ and about celebrating the, the, the violent foundation of our country. Every, every country celebrates their violent foundations, and almost all countries have a violent foundation. But should Christians be celebrating this, especially when it's Christians killing other Christians to, to, to get the freedom that you're talking about? Here's a quote. This is from, this is from my favorite book, the American Patriots Bible. I'm kidding. Um, and in most study Bibles, you know, they have little footnotes to various verses that explain what's going on in the verse to help you be better informed. Well, the American Patriots Bible, and I'm sorry, I just am going to say it straight, um, the Word of God and the Shaping of America. And here they weave into all these verses some, some point about American history or American ideals or whatever. It is the clearest example of nationalistic idolatry that I've ever seen in my life. And in this, this book, I'll just, just, just illustrate something. In Colossians chapter 2, verse 7, there's a phrase that the uh, Patriots Bible wants to comment on. It's the phrase, rooted and built up in him, Jesus Christ, and established in the faith. Paul is here praying that his, his congregation would be rooted and built up in Jesus and established in the faith. On that basis, they give this quote. And the quote is from John Quincy Adams, the fourth president of the United States, speaking on the 61st anniversary of the Declaration of Independence. And he says this, listen to this. Why is it that, next to the birthday of the Savior of the world, your most joyous and most venerated festival returns on this day, July 4th? Why, why, why do we venerate July 4th? Now, he's, he's assuming that every, every American Christian is going to be venerating, uh, loving J July 4th. And he's asking, why is this, second to Christmas, this is the most sacred holiday for us? Why is that? Is it not that, in the chain of human events, the birthday of the nation is indissolubly linked with the birthday of the Savior. Obviously, the birth of America is linked to the birth of the Savior. Don't you see that? Come on, look at it. And, uh, is it not that, 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 that the Declaration of Independence forms a leading event in the progress of the gospel dispensation as the kingdom of God is going forward? Isn't it obvious that America is the, it furthers that gospel dispensation, is furthering the kingdom of God? 
Of course, no wonder we celebrate July 4th, so it's a sacred holiday. Is it not that the Declaration of Independence first organized the social compact on the foundation of the Redeemer's mission upon the earth? In other words, is it not because our government is the first political expression of the reason for which Jesus Christ came to earth? Now, there's so much that's wrong with that passage, I don't know where to begin. <laughs> but I'll just say this. This is, what's, this is nationalistic idolatry. And there's a strand in American history that is just full of this. Where we are the exceptional nation. We are founded by God. God was on our side, obviously, when we fought the British. How do we know that? Because we won. And Paganism 101 will tell you, this is an article of faith going back to the dawn of history, that the way you know that your God is greater than the other gods is that you win in battle. That's always the proof. So obviously God was on our side. Our British brothers and sisters, I wonder how you feel about this. Huh? I, I, how does that make you feel if you're like, yeah, God was on our side when we, when we kicked your butt back in 1776. Huh? Our God is bigger than your God. Our God is greater than yours. We won the battle, so you had a skedaddle. Our God is greater than yours. It, come on! In the kingdom, can't we do better than that? But see, it's, it's, it's a matter of providence. It's manifest destiny. That, that's the myth of, of redemptive violence. And the fact that John Quincy Adams could say that and people could be believing this shows you just how thoroughly indoctrinated we are with this. It's not obvious. Our country is better, but we see it all these other ways. I mean, just in the assumption that whatever country you're born into, you have a sacred duty, a sacred duty to, to fight for that country. Unless it's against ours, of course, then it doesn't apply. But it's just assume that whatever, whatever land you're born in, well, you're going to kill and die for that land. Even though maybe you don't know a thing about the wars you're fighting, you don't know a thing about what your king is doing, you don't think about whether it's justified or not, but you have a duty to do it. Who told you that? Well, it goes back 5,000 years. Myth of redemptive violence. You see that, 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 that the myth working when people think, uh, we're going to fight for God and country. Our God and country. Not realizing that that's the, one of the oldest slogans in the book. Everyone fights for God and country. Except for the atheists, but they have a different kind of a God. But it's hard to motivate people to kill and die unless you, there's some kind of divine purpose involved in that. You see the myth of redemptive violence in, at work and in, in, in this illusion that you're safer if you're walking around with a gun in your pocket. Even though there's, there's tons of research that shows that you're not safer. In most situations, if you introduce a gun, you just went from playing nickel poker to life and death poker. And generally speaking, criminals are better at using guns and are calmer when using guns than you are. And so it usually backfires, literally. But we keep on believing that. Oh, I'm, I'm safe. I got this gun. You see it in oh, so many movies and, and so many television shows, even in so many songs. Some would even argue you can see it in sports, the myth of redemptive violence, especially in contact sports. Now we're going to obliterate them. We're going to massacre them. We're going to slaughter them. Now, on the other side, some folks would argue that actually sports is a great way of releasing this kind of violent inclination we have so that we don't have to actually engage in violence. So it's kind of a, vicar a vicarious release. And if that works, fine. I'd rather have, I'd rather have you know, cage boxing than, than, than people killing each other. Although in cage boxing, I think they do kind of kill each other. But you see the myth of redemptive violence in this assumption that Jesus couldn't possibly have meant what he said. Love your enemies. Uh, the reason that sounds crazy to us is because we're so conditioned in the myth of redemptive violence. The only way to get rid of enemies is to kill them. You see the myth of redemptive violence at work in the widespread conviction, conviction especially among conservative Christians, that uh, some crimes you just need to kill a person for doing it. Yeah, it, it, it death is, the only way to fix this problem is to kill a person. You see the myth of redemptive violence. In every fist fight that's ever broken out, in every verbal fight that's ever broken out, in any, any gunfight that's ever been fought, Jesus couldn't have meant what he said. But see, it goes against our common sense because our common sense is infused with the myth of redemptive violence. But see, that's the right way to go against common sense. It goes against common sense because it's so loving. And that's the kind of unconventional, uncommonsensical thing that we're supposed to be believing and supposed to be living in. But for some folks, in fact, for the majority of folks throughout church history, after the fourth century, it's just too, it's beyond the pale. I, we can't believe that. It's too impractical. It's obvious that we're justified using violence when it comes to protecting our neighbor. And so the way the reasoning is usually gone is like this. Well, look, since it's obvious that I should use any violence necessary to protect my spouse and my children, so whatever Jesus means by loving enemies, he doesn't mean that, obviously. But if, it's, if, if I obviously should protect my, my family, then why wouldn't I also protect my neighbor? And if I'm protecting my neighbor, well, my neighbor, 
why wouldn't I also then protect my state? Use whatever violence is necessary to protect the state. And if I protect the state, why not the country? It just makes sense, obviously. So whatever Jesus means, he doesn't, by enemies, he doesn't mean national enemies. He doesn't mean enemies that actually threaten our lives, obviously. So now, whatever Jesus means, it's going to be something pretty vanilla, something pretty middle of the road, uh, commonsensical. Uh, now Jesus means, well, love that grouchy neighbor of yours or that ornery mother-in-law of yours or, or whatever, but, but nothing too radical. That's how their thinking has usually gone. It's called just war theory. And it basically says this, don't go to war unless you're justified going to war. Don't engage in violence unless you're justified engaging in violence. It's profound, isn't it? Find me one example in history of someone who didn't feel justified engaging in the violence that they were engaging in. That's why you engage in violence, because you feel justified. They wronged you, obviously, and so you justify killing them. So what does this just war theory do except to say, hey, you know how you all feel justified killing each other? Keep on doing that. Yeah, that, that, that just keep going. Doesn't, doesn't do anything. Uh, I'm overstating it. There are cases, I'm sure, where it may restrain war for a little bit. War should always be a last resort. But if you justify killing, that, that's why you kill in the first place. It doesn't really do very much. Now Jesus' teaching has turned into just this little quaint teaching about be kind to grouchy people. But see, here's the thing. Jesus knows that what he's saying is radical. That's why he says, hey, look, if you love the way everyone else loves, you don't put on display that your children are the Father. You, you, you love those who love you. Everyone does that. You, you, you greet those who greet you. Everyone does that. But when you love in a way that the world can't love, now you put on display that you're children of your Father in heaven, that you're born from above. You got the Father's DNA. You got that Father's resemblance. He knows he's saying something that's radical and counterintuitive. Another thing is this, is that people are always looking for, what enemies can I kill? Who do I get to hate? Which already is kind of asking the wrong question. But when Jesus says, love your enemies, he's talking to Palestinian Jews. First century Palestinian peasant Jews. And these first century Palestinian peasant Jews, they're under Roman uh, authority. Rome has conquered this area. They're in occupied territory. And Rome was brutal. They ruled with terror. They were terrorists. The way, that, the way they kept the Pax Romana, the peace of Rome, the way they kept that was by terrorizing people into submission, compliance. And so sometimes they would kill innocent people just to show that they could, to keep people in line. It'd be a little bit like if Al-Qaeda had conquered America and uh, was imposing Sharia law on us and making life miserable. There'd be a lot of people who would hate them and a lot of people who would want to kill them. But Jesus comes along and says, love your enemies. And you see, in the first century, when you say enemy, everyone, the first thought in every Jewish person's mind are the Romans. They're enemy number one. Like Al-Qaeda, they were enemy number one. And Jesus has the audacity to say, love your enemies. They include the worst kind of enemies you can imagine. So if Rome, if, if, if the Romans aren't excluded from Jesus' teachings to love your enemies, then I submit to you that there are no exceptions to Jesus' teaching to love your enemies. Because it doesn't get any worse than the Romans. So there can't be any ex exceptions to this. But even more importantly, notice that Jesus, he, his teaching isn't based on the merits of the person that you're talking about in front of you, whether they're good or evil. To the contrary, his teaching is based on the character of God, which renders the merits of the person in front of you completely irrelevant. He says, love like the rain falls, love like the sun shines, because that's how God loves. And if you want to be children of your Father in heaven, that's how you are to love. So it's based on the character of God, which means it's indiscriminating, which means there can't be any exceptions. You can no more pick and choose who you're going to love and who you're going to be nonviolent towards. You don't get to pick and choose that any more than the rain picks and chooses who's going to get wet or the sun chooses who's going to warm up. No, it's just because God is that way, we are to be this way, even if it costs us our lives. So you can't go very, if you're digging deeper to try to get around this passage, you're not going to have much luck if you're trying to change the word enemy. Hmm, who really is our enemy? Well, obviously it doesn't mean the real nasty kind of enemies. So it must mean something vanilla like love your grouchy grandmother. But it, it, you can't get very far with that. So maybe you could play with the word love. 
What does he mean when he says, love your enemies? I mean, that's kind of ambiguous. And we, have, we, we are geniuses at making something complex when it's in our, in our self-interest to make it complex. Hmm, what is love? That's a tough one, man. We have to think a long time about that. I mean, I love love. What does he mean? Who can know these kind of things, right? And so St. Augustine, who is always so clever, um, he comes up with this definition. He says, love does not require any particular action from us. It rather requires a disposition. It's about a subjective feeling, a disposition. So, with this, and Augustine's writing after Christianity has inherited all this power, and so he's one of the main masterminds to accommodate Christianity to this new power so we get to kill when it's in our interest to do so. And so this is a really convenient definition because with this definition, love doesn't have any behavioral implications. So you can, and I'm not exaggerating here, you can torture someone and still claim to be loving them. You can be burning them alive and still claim to be loving them. Augustine was the first one to advocate this policy that torture is sometimes justified uh, to, to, to keep uh, society in line and, and to uh, preserve the orthodoxy of the Christian faith. So it's, you're justified torturing heretics. And he uses the verse in Luke 14 where Jesus says, compel them to come into the banquet. Oh, she said compel. It didn't say how. So let's burn people alive and maybe that way we, we can elicit a, a confession of faith which always struck me as the stupidest thing in the world because if you're going to confess that Jesus is Lord because you're being burned to death, uh, how likely is that to be a sincere, loving confession? I just don't get it. I'm sorry. But see, it's a nice, convenient uh, uh, definition. Oh, I love them. I, I, I wish them well in my heart. But um, nevertheless, I will torture them or kill them if my, if, my, if my king says that we're supposed to kill. But here's the problem. I mean, among other things, Jesus... He specifies action. Love is an action thing we do. He says, pray for those who persecute you. That's an action that you do. And that, that's the action he tells us to have towards those who persecute us. In Luke, in the same passage, uh, Jesus says, do good to those who, 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 who mistreat you and, and, and bless those who, who persecute you. Do good to them. Now, I'm sorry, but the last time I checked, burning someone alive isn't doing good to them. Burning someone alive is not blessing them. <laughs> burning someone alive is not loving them. But it just shows you the extent that people will go to get around these verses. But the biggest problem with Augustine's redefinition of love as a subjective thing is that the Bible, we don't get to, choose, we don't get to invent what the word love means. No, the Bible gives us a definition of love, and it's as clear a definition as you could possibly get because it points us to a person, and it points us to an event. It points us to an action. 1 John 3.16 says, here's how we know what love is. It's not hard, folks. There's not a lot of figuring out to do here. This isn't rocket science. Here's what love looks like. Jesus Christ loved us and gave his life for us. So also we should give our life for one another. Love's about willing to die for another, not willing to kill them. Love's about loving your persecutor, not being the persecutor. It's, it, so love's about pouring out towards others. It's always self-sacrificial. It always has the well-being of another in mind, whether the person is holding a bouquet to you or holding out a holding out a gun. Okay, so let's, let's take it back. Let's get real here. What do you do then if someone breaks into your house and threatens not just you, but your, your, your loved ones, your spouse, your friend, or your children? What do you do? Well, here, here's what I recommend. Rather than assuming our obviousness, always be paranoid about what's obvious to you. Uh, rather than thinking it's obvious Jesus didn't mean this, Especially since when we dig deeper, we can't find anything that gets us out of this teaching that we should love all of our enemies. So rather than assuming that my obvious is right, so Jesus must be wrong or it must mean something else, how about if we start with the assumption that Jesus is right? And maybe there's something wrong with us. If we, if we don't see the morality and the goodness of something Jesus is teaching, maybe the problem's with us. And so since... Rarely does someone break into your house and threaten your life or the life of your, your, your children and loved ones. Rather than starting with that rare event and working backwards to just war theory, how about if we start with, something that Jesus, with the assumption that Jesus is telling the truth and maybe if we practiced it day in and day out, maybe after 10 years we'd have formed the kind of character that would see the wisdom and the goodness of what Jesus is teaching. Maybe if I practiced loving my enemies in all the little ways that I can possibly love them, that when, when it comes to the big way I'm supposed to love an enemy when they're threatening my, my wife or my, my kids, maybe then I won't just be thinking about a rule I'm supposed to obey. Maybe I have developed the kind of character where I actually love my enemies. It's not just a rule, it's, it's a reality. It'd be like, 
how, how would we frame things if, if, if the enemy who broke in and threatened my, my, my spouse and my kids or my friend or whatever, if that was my son, he went crazy or something, and he had an axe, he's going to kill everybody. Well, you know what? I will do everything I can to protect my, my, my loved ones because I love them, but I'm also going to do everything I can to protect my son because I love him. And killing him is not an option. It's off the table. And the minute you take violence off the table, it opens up, as I said last week, and if you didn't hear that message last week, I encourage you to tune into it, but it opens up a world of possibilities that we never even consider if we're packing, carrying a piece. You go right for the gun. The minute you go right for the gun, all those options, all the alternatives come to a close. Because now there's only one thing important, that's that you got a gun. And now you're not playing nickel poker or quarter poker or dollar poker, you're playing life and death poker. And odds are that you're going to lose at that. So maybe if I cultivate in little ways, I'll actually love the person. Because see, the Sermon on the Mount, and this holds for all of Jesus' teachings, he's not giving us a set of rules that we're supposed to look up in the right situation. Okay, well, someone's breaking into my house. Hmm, what's the rule about that now? Oh, oh, yeah. Oh, I'm supposed to love them. Okay. When someone breaks in and threatens you or a loved one, you don't go according to rules. You operate out of your character, out of your instinct. What have you been cultivating? So Jesus isn't inviting us to have an index of rules that we're supposed to obey. He's inviting us to a new way of life, a, a, a character that we're supposed to be developing and, and, and practicing day in and day out. We're supposed to be growing into Christ-likeness. And that involves never retaliating. It involves loving your enemies. I'll say this. This only works. It only works if you believe, if you're convinced that you live in an eternal narrative, not a finite one. Uh, all of Jesus' teachings presuppose that you, we're aware that we don't live in a, in, a, in a finite narrative. If you're living in a narrative, regardless of what you theoretically believe, but if what's real to you is that this life is all there is, then you will do everything that you have to to protect it. And in that case, death is the most tragic thing that could happen to you. But see, to be a follower of Jesus means we understand that Jesus rose from the dead. And, and, and that's supposed to take away our fear of death. And that lacking fear of death is what allows us to love recklessly, crazily, outlandishly. Love like the Father loves because the Father never dies. It only works if we're living in this eternal narrative. Here's something that one of my favorite authors, uh, Stanley Hauerwas, says. Listen to this. He says, we, can, we cannot deny that in certain circumstances it may be necessary to watch others die unjustly. Uh, there's no promise that this world of possibilities that opens up when we take violence off the table, there's no guarantee that that will work. You still might get killed. Your loved ones might get killed. That's how it's been throughout history. The early Christians had to watch their children and spouses be fed to the lions before they were fed to the lions, before the fathers were fed. That was part of their torture. So that can happen. And that surely is harder than envisioning our own deaths. The only thing worse would be for our failing to witness to our brother and sister that God's love took the form of a cross so that the powers, the principalities and powers that make our world so violent might be defeated. That our death and the death of others might be required if we are faithful to the cross cannot be denied. But it would only be more tragic if we died in a manner that underwrites the pagan assumption that nothing is more tragic than death itself. Without this eschatological conviction, how the Christian pacifist serves the neighbor in a violent world cannot help but be unintelligible. What he's saying is that our behavior, our, this call to love our enemies, to never retaliate, is utterly unintelligible unless you really believe that you live forever. And that death is not the most tragic thing there is. I really think to be a follower of, of Jesus authentically means you commit the conviction that it's better to die than to kill under any circumstance. Because that's what Jesus teaching, teaches and that's what Jesus practiced. Jesus' resurrection from the dead proves that the cross way of life is victorious. Jesus' resurrection from the dead proves that death is not the end. Hallelujah. Jesus' resurrection from the dead proves that the love of God that's revealed on Calvary defeats death, it defeats sin, it defeats the devil, it defeats the grave. Hallelujah. It, it, the resurrection of Jesus proves that that love that's revealed on Calvary is the one thing that lasts forever and ever and ever. It proves that what God has in store for those who love him can't be compared to the sufferings of this present world. Hallelujah. And that is what enables and empowers us to love with this reckless kind of love. We don't have to cling to our life. And you're never truly free until you're free from trying to cling to your life. Two, two little pieces of advice on close with this. Number one, parents, I encourage you to teach your kids this really early on. Teach your kids this early on. Talk about what would you do if an intruder broke in. And talk about the beauty of the kingdom and how a kingdom response is so different from what you get out there in the world. Why you wouldn't resort to killing the person. 
It's important that you do this in an age-appropriate way. But see, if you don't give them the right interpretation of why you're not going to violently defend them, the world with its myth of redemptive violence will provide the interpretation. And what it looks like to a kid, if they're indoctrinated by the world, is that uh, my dad doesn't love me very much, or my dad is a weak person. And that's not the interpretation you want them to have. Explain to them uh, why we have this conviction. Explain to them that they are part of a movement that, that, that understands that uh, you'll, never, you'll never conquer hate with hate, you'll never conquer violence with violence, and you're never going to conquer evil with evil. The only thing that can conquer evil and violence and all sin is, is, is the love of God. It's a willingness to lay it on your life even for, for your enemies. And I would encourage you to, to, to be teaching them really early on um, to love their enemies. Who's the bully in school? Uh, talk about that. Who, who, are the, who are the mean kids? And pray for them. And, 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 and practice having them agree with God that that person has unsurpassable worth. And teach them how to notice the stranger, the alien, the, the, the misfit, the kid who has to eat alone. So they're not just you know, tied to their own little clique. I know security is big for kids with social context, but if you only greet those who are in your clique, your brothers and sisters, well, everyone does that. We want to be raising kingdom kids. Uh, teach them how to notice, how to look at the world through the radical love of, of, of Calvary. And finally, as I shared last week, I encourage all of us, as a regular discipline, there ought to be a handful of people that you are continually praying for and practicing loving. Take out the, the, the people in your life that are the hardest to love. And it may, be, it may be the Taliban over in Afghanistan, or it may be your wife or your husband or one of your kids, because sometimes they can feel like the enemy. Amen? Amen? But... If we don't practice it, we never grow into it. And so as a regular practice, ask the Spirit to show you who are you to be praying for. And, and, it's, and I know it can, sometimes, it can sometimes, you have to crucify yourself to do it. Amen. Especially when there's somebody that is, is harming one of your loved ones. And yet you're supposed to love them. It's the hardest thing in the world to do. It, is, it goes against all reason. But it goes against all reason for the right reason. And that's because only that is consistent with the character of God that we're called to manifest. Only that is consistent with being a child of the Father in heaven. Amen? Amen. Embrace that practice. Engage in it continually. All right. Hey, if you have any prayer needs, I encourage you to, uh, um, online there, uh, you can, you can uh, find a, per, a person to pray with online. Um, or here, they'll be up at the front of the auditorium. I, um, I encourage you to check out the gathering groups uh, where you can talk with people from around the world sometimes uh, about the message. And on Tuesdays we have uh, the Muse where at 4 o'clock we go deeper with the message. And so you can check out that as well. Um, God bless you guys. I just close with this. Father, teach us to love the way you love. Like the rain falls, like the sun shines to all people at all times. No if and buts, exception clauses or footnotes. Help us to love like you love in Jesus' name. And all God's children said... Amen. God bless you guys. Go out and love on your neighbor and your enemy.